welcome to Luxury On Air, where we explore the trends, innovations, and personalities defining and redefining the luxury industry. Hello, and back again to an episode from the Luxury On Air podcast series, today with a luxury academic expert. I'm very thrilled to have Yajin Wang with me. She's Associate Professor at the China-Europe International Business School in Shanghai. And prior to joining CEIBS, she was an Assistant Professor at the University of Maryland. Yajin, for me, is a truly international researcher who knows two worlds, the Eastern and the Western culture. And together with her, we are going to take a sneak peek into the vibrant luxury landscape in China. Yajin, a very warm welcome to this podcast show. Hello. Hi, everyone. It's so nice to be here. Um, thank you for having me. Excellent. Thank you. Yajin, you have grown up in China. You have lived and worked in the United States for many years, and now you're back in China. Personally, what do you have missed the most from your home country? <laughs> well, obviously, I have to see the food. Um, I guess that's what everybody misses when they leave the hometown. But actually, also the incredible experiences as, as a consumer, I guess. Um, my new hobby now, if I can share, is to buy you know, these fresh flowers directly from the farmers in Yunnan province, which is more than 2,000 kilometers away from Shanghai, where I currently live, through live streaming uh, e-commerce. So I can receive them fresh out of garden within you know, 48 hours, and I can arrange them. And you know, it's, it's very, very relaxing for me. And that would not be able, um, I would not be able to do this um, if it's not in this extremely efficient and um, overwhelming e-commerce uh, landscape that China has right now. Wow, you're fully into the uh, e-commerce experience <laughs> as a consumer. We are going to talk about that in a second. Um, because uh, while you have not only been doing research uh, as an academic there, you are living everything firsthand as a consumer. Um, but maybe going a little bit back to your um, experience of research and consulting for the luxury industry during that time in the US and at the same time in Asia, uh, you see these direct comparisons between those luxury landscapes in the Western and Eastern part of the world. Mm. What would you say is the most differentiating aspect um, of the Eastern approach towards luxury consumption? We already heard a little sneak peek from your flower <laughs> experience, but maybe you can develop. Yeah, you know, I have to see probably is the reaction and the adaptation to new new technology and the speed of change. I think that's the probably the most, you know, uh, differentiating point of the Eastern and the Western um, cultures towards luxury brands and management in that sense. Um, because before COVID-19, right, Chinese actually buy luxury travel aboard. So, um, the, the overall of how luxury branding is, you know, managing these customers, interacting with consumers, it's going slowly towards digitalization, but it's not in the revolution sense. And I think the COVID-19 really, you know, pushed that and Chinese consumers or China, China market are the pioneer um, ahead of the game and in terms of the digitalization of how the entirely change of the market. Yeah. That's super interesting. And maybe even a little bit scary if I look at European <laughs> yeah, houses. Yeah. I mean, 
Totally. I mean, I mean, if you think about the digitalization and how people acquire information, make purchase decision experience with the brand, we really cannot use the traditional sort of customer journey, you know, where you have awareness, you form aptitude because you saw some advertisement, maybe on mass media, and then you, you know, search for alternatives and finally make the purchase decision. And now the consumers, the new generations, they live in the internet. They, they have all the information available right on their hand. So, you know, they make purchase decision on the spot. They are influenced by different celebrities or KLL or KLC. And they are so used to just buy things on their smartphone and get it delivered the next day. So that type of, you know, the customer journey is, is quite different. And that require the brands to really react and adapt. Um, so if I could elaborate it a little bit more on this, um, you know, one thing that is the most obvious one is, you know, all the luxury brands now start to use online channels as a, as a purchase um, channel. And even the, the, the slowest in the game, actually, um, I know you guys are in, um, in Zurich, um, is luxury jewelry and a watch. <laughs> right. Mm-hmm. So even all the other fashion brands move forward with, you know, uh, selling their merchandise um, um, online or um, on Amazon and luxury jewelry and watch are, are quite slow in that sense. I guess part of the reason is, you know, they are worried that, first of all, they are very expensive. You know, average costs, it could go from several thousand to ten thousand to half a million uh, U.S. dollars. And, um, you know, they're worried that consumer wouldn't buy such things online. And also, it probably will also hurt the brand experiences. Um, but actually, um, this year, luxury jewelry and timepieces sell in China um, increases. And this is the only market that where Swiss watch exports increased last year up to 20%. And one of the major players, Richmond, basically have all their online stores now at uh, Tmall and GRD.com. And that contributes um, a lot to their online business. Um, they grow by 80%. So, you know, definitely they're using online. It's, 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 it's almost impossible not to use that channel um, to use as a purchase channel. And um, the things, you know, continue with that is also this way of interacting with its consumers. And that is evolved with many, many more other brands, including fashion brands. Um, they use live streaming e-commerce, um, which, you know, it, it started out with, it's often associated with very cheap, fast moving consumer goods and the beauty products. So there, you know, there's quite controversial when I think LV Louis Vuitton started. Uh, maybe two or three years ago. And it was quite controversial because people think, you know, luxury brand, they should be presented in a glamorous light and it will be perfect setting, right? You have you have movie stars that is spokesperson and now you are sort of in a cheap looking <laughs> live streaming room and now you are taking these, you know, thousands of dollars of clothing and handbags and show consumers how to wear them. It's, <laughs> it looked like a TV selling back in the 80s, if you know what I mean. <laughs> so, um, so many consumers actually reacted to it negatively and thought, oh, you know, luxury brand would not do this. Um, but, you know, the fact is that um, the live streaming selling is, is just so prevalent here that that's the way you have to engage um, with consumers. 
So now, I mean, major brands all have their own live streaming platforms. They also, you know, um, collaborate with local KOL. Um, and, you know, this, this, they can sell hundreds of handbags within seconds. And that is something that, you know, the traditional stores and even the best salesperson couldn't achieve. Um, wow, this is fascinating. Yeah. If I just maybe yeah. um, dig a little bit deeper into the KOL and KOC mm -hmm. thing, because I'm not sure whether all our listeners know what these abbreviations mm -hmm. stand for. And maybe you can de develop a little bit more what that means in that Absolutely. vibrant environment. <laughs> yeah, so KOL is um, a key opinion leader. Um, and KOC is key opinion consumers. So these are not traditional, the spokesperson for luxury, right? So like key opinion leaders, they're they are really from the grass. They, they made the, their names by producing contents on social media. So one of the most famous guy in China, his name is Austin Lee, and he's known for, you know, selling lipsticks right a guy that, that girls just trust his opinion <laughs> he said the color is good they will rush to it right so he made his name very from the grassroots and sell you know different brands of lipsticks but now he becomes sort of the you know consumer trust him and trust his opinions trust his taste so major luxury brand collaborate with him uh farigamo for example collaborate with him and he can sell hundreds of belts and shoes uh, within 10 seconds. Um, so when I talked to, you know, the CEO in China of uh, Farigamo, Derek, and he shared with me about the collaboration stories that they had with Austin. And uh, he, you know, he has to admit that it's effective. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. So, and, and these, this type of, you know, um, promotion, I guess was not something that luxury brand would imagine it would engage, right? Because what if the guy, I mean, the guy also sells like $10 lipsticks, right? So he's not, you know, obviously a, a, a high status celebrity. So in terms of the, you know, when we talk about traditional branding, you have to have the spokesperson or, or the salesperson that represent the brand and the, the image needs to be consistent. I mean, none of that is really there. Um, so, you know, that, that that's, that's, the, I think that's the interesting part about, you know, that the guy also sells $5 potato, potato hmm. chips right after Farigamo shoes. <laughs> yeah, that is, uh, really an, uh, yeah, kind of a difficult thing to manage. I can imagine for luxury brands, yeah, as you, as you just mentioned, uh, and I can see that as a kind of two-sided sword that I do see a couple of opportunities, but I also see a couple of challenges. I don't know whether you share this opinion, but if so, maybe you can explain us a little bit. What is it that is really the opportunity in here and where would you see risks? I think the opportunities here is definitely that luxury brands understand that they need to keep up with the young consumers, hmm. which live on their fingertips and smart technologies. And, um, and also they are not really traditionally listened to mass media. They do not really obey for the tradition, you know, values. You need to communicate with them and in a language that they're willing to listen. So I think if you do not use these type of platforms, you, you missed out of the opportunities. So I think definitely brands are all looking at that and know that these are the next 
you know, um, next market, the Gen Z and, and, and the post 80s. So um, the opportunity is you cannot miss it because that's how they communicate to each mm -hmm. other. Um, the challenges is definitely there. And, 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 and may I add that the opportunity also, also comes with the incredibly uh, sales skills or the quantity that you can reach in terms of performance in the brand that are through KOL, right? So these are all, you know, all opportunities. But, but if you think about sort of challenges, um, just like you mentioned, um, when the brands has many more touch points, the more difficult they can manage over consistently, right? And especially when you are dealing with this very powerful um, key opinion leaders, they also have the interest to develop their own personal brand. Um, so they are not necessarily, um, you know, listen to the, the, the brand and, you know, deliver the message that you want them to deliver because they mm -hmm. also want to gain credibility and develop their own personal brands instead of helping, you know, the luxury brands. So I'll share, your, share with you a funny story that um, one of the luxury brands that collaborated with the, with the key, um, key opinion leader, Austin Lee, I mentioned. And um, he, he, he always tells others that her, his mother really likes this particular brand, the pair of shoes. <laughs> Right. And obviously, that's not what the brand want, want, want him to deliver to the mass audience. Um, no offense, but the brand want to be, you know, presented as a young and, <laughs> uh, you know, a young and lively and, you know, fashionable uh, a product. So he, the CEO, directly told Austin many times um, that please do not mention your mother. <laughs> and uh, when the, the brand goes on live, the CEO was in the living room, in the living um, life, life e-commerce room with Austin. And he got excited and he split his uh, word again. He said, this is the pair is my mother's favorite. <laughs> <laughs> so you see, like this would never happen in, in old time where you completely can control the content you are delivered. Mm -hmm. Right. But now it's real time. Right? It's real engagement. It's real time. Once he said it, it said, um, and, and frankly, the, 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 the brands rely on him to, to sell. So the, the, there's an interesting power dynamic also, I mean, that sense. And mm -hmm. also, you know, um, because of all the multiple touch points, including, um, you know, KOA and key opinion consumers and brands are doing a lots of, you know, live e-commerce, they're expanding their team very quickly. Some of them, it's not even belong to the company. So the, 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 the challenge is to manage them and even for them to understand what the essence of the brand and what they want to communicate to the consumers, what's the heritage. And that part is, is you know, it's not always perfectly delivered. Mm -hmm. What I'm taking out of this, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I take... Uh, especially a power challenge out of this um, because I had the impression in former times, luxury brands were the absolute holders of power of among their customers. And this is changing quite a lot with the internet and also with all those KOLs and KOCs Absolutely. who actually want their own brands. Absolutely. Yeah. I think the power, it's not just, uh, you know, the balance between them and the key, key opinion leader and key opinion consumers even, you know, it's also with, with consumers and even people that who are not your consumers. 
because the, the platform is open, right? People mm -hmm. can can go to your live e-commerce room and discuss your brand, and that's instantly been seen by everybody. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. And you know, the, 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 if the content go viral. And it's difficult also for, you know, in terms of the power to, to manage it. I mean, the, you know, this, the, the, this news about Dolce Cabana back uh, a, a few years ago where, um, you know, they, they had this um, advertisement where they, some of Chinese consumers think it's offensive. And uh, this blows out of proportion in, in China market. And frankly, you don't really see the brand that much anymore in China. Um, I don't think they, they recovered, to be honest, mm -hmm. in China market. Um, you know, so that's also another side of the story about power. Um, it's, you know, along with all this user-generated platform. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and especially also the cultural sensitivity. I remember this case, uh, how mm -hmm. Deutsche und Gabbana more or less really shot themselves out of the game by a couple of hiccups they produced in their advertisements. Um, yeah. And uh, yeah, yeah, just for a yeah. lack of cultural sensitivity. Exactly, exactly. And, 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 and another part about the, the power part, and I guess culture also, is actually the, 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 the tension or the, the communication within the, within the company itself. So I've been, I've observed, you know, the, the, the tension from the China team and the headquarter that usually based in Europe. <laughs> Mm -hmm. So, you know, at CEIBS, CEIBS, where I teach now, we have um, executives that are, you know, the head or the CMO of, of these international luxury brands, China, China team. And they are facing this day-to-day -day challenges of dealing with, you know, the, this crazy, uh, fast-moving environment and have to use the marketing tools that sound um quite ridiculous um, to, 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 to their headquarters back in Europe because, you know, this goes against what we believe as luxury brand, right? Mm -hmm. You should be having a heritage, you should culture the, 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 the experiences and you should be exclusive. And now you put you out there, you, you are on every, we are everywhere, you're you are selling online. So it's a graduation process for for them to be on the same state uh, same page and i have to say many of them are still not on the same page <laughs> so mm -hmm. there's also but you know the headquarters couldn't ignore the market here so mm -hmm. that's also adds to another dilemma and you know power balance here um that um it's also you know since you mentioned power that's also part of it yeah yeah definitely and there was uh, actually one thing i was uh, I always had in mind, I had the impression when you were telling us about the live streaming, e-commerce, um, WeChat accounts uh, with customers, were very personalized within 24 hours delivery, um, that it seems really to be everywhere. And that somehow contradicts the idea of, well, the European old-fashioned traditional view of luxury as something very exclusive, even exclusionary or even... Yeah. segregationist that you want to keep out some people exactly. um so how how do you make sense of this i i know that you are researching a little bit into this into this tension of exclusivity yeah. and inclusiveness in in asian markets yeah it, it's it's really interesting i think you're absolutely on the point that we you know the industry the brands and our academic 
uh, we all think exclusivity is the essence of luxury, right? But exclusivity, the word itself nowadays is not a, even a good word. <laughs> so actually, um, I was talking to several brands here and talking about their positioning in China. And I had an interesting comment from, from, from one of the top um, CEOs of one of the brands. And he said, you know, we would like not to use the word luxury. <laughs> um, we, we don't like the word luxury. And, and a young generation don't like the word luxury um, because it sounded pretentious. It sounded that... <laughs> It sounds, you know, excluding others. It sounds um, that um, showing. It sounds that you are not very inclusion. So, so I think there is definitely this. This we all understand that if luxury is everywhere, it loses essence. However, because of the micro trends in in the ecosystem of luxury, that these brands are pushed to to pursue, you know, all kinds of inclusion practices. And by inclusion practice, I don't mean just the DEI and in the political sense. It also means that you know you are everywhere in terms of in, in terms of you're offering more affordable products, you're offering financing options. You know, you can now buy a pair of Gucci shoes and you pay $50 for like a year. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so now teenagers can do that, right? And they launch on e-commerce, expanding into categories that are used not to be considered as luxury, like, you know, sports shoes or sneakers or, you know, ripped jeans. So, and also obviously have to include other cultures. So all these practices actually leads to a strategic paradox that um, we think that contemporary luxury firms facing is how to stay or how to stay be, to be perceived exclusive while becoming inclusive. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And do you have any ideas, answers, or recommendations to integrate these two yeah. opposites? So, yeah, yeah, it's it's that's that's interesting. Um, you know, with me and my my um, my my colleagues, we were looking at this issue, and we're still working on this uh, re- a stream of research. But we generally consider. Um, that there are maybe, we conceptualize this practice along two dimensions. Um, one is called attainability of luxury. That is considered as, you know, how often, how much, and how many people can get access mm-hmm. um, to luxury. So that is on the tension of either, either you have restricted office or you have accessible everywhere, right? So that's along the line of um, attainability. But there's another uh, dimension we think is called, we call it luxury territory. So that means that you are expanding to other culture, to other um, categories that used to be taboo, to other even values and that was held against the traditional status and luxury. So these dimensions um, we think that are, you know, are, are sort of posing to each other. So our salute, one of the solution we have, if 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 we could call it a solution, is we call it dimensional leveraging. So that is we that that means that if the firm is using one dimension to leverage on the inc- inclusion part, you should protect on the other dimension of exclusivity of the brand. So mm-hmm. let's say if you want to engage in 
inclusion along the attainability, right? You want to make it affordable. You want to have it uh, sell at many, many touch points. Um, probably you, you, you need to keep the territory more exclusive so that you can still use the traditional code to make traditional luxury code to remain exclusivity. Um, conversely, if a brand is engaged in inclusion along the territory side, you know, you go to ribbed jeans or you want to do rebuilding culture, you, 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 you know, you, you go to the lifestyle that is go against of the mainstream of, you know, privilege, um, you probably need to protect on the attainability side, right? So don't make it everywhere. Um, you know, still control the, the offered as limited edition, control the accessibility part. Um, so that's one thing we, we suggest that uh, if a company is trying to do both, um, that seemed dangerous um, to us. Yeah. Okay, so the um, phenomenon that we see a lot, like limited editions on uh, sneakers in collaboration with artists or celebrities, that is a typical um, extending the territory, but limiting the accessibility exactly. of, yeah. uh, of the luxury. Okay, yeah. okay. And also, uh, we, we, we thought that another way, uh, that that's obviously a lot of, you know, big luxury um groups that are doing is portfolio management, right? So you can, you know, leverage brand architectures with sub-brand, with um, different um, brands that you can explore different territories, so to speak. Yeah. Would you have an example um, of one of those brands that master that well in terms of <laughs> increasing accessibility while at the same time protecting the yeah. territory? Um, yeah. I, I, in terms of the portfolio configuration, I think, you know, LVMH group is, is doing quite good. It has lots of brands, but if you look at how, whenever LVMH acquire a new brand, they, you can see that sometimes they keep the brand as it is. It's a very traditional, it's still conservative. It's very exclusive. And they use some other brands to explore um, going to a much younger or a much different design to do much inclusion culture. And, you know, so we can see that I think LVMH um, is really leveraging that portfolio configuration um, to, to, to experimenting as well as to be more inclusive, but not to all of their brands. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So it is even some kind of ambidextrous capacity that you need to build up in the long term. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Mm -hmm. So to, to bring it into um, recommendations, suggestions for managers who are now listening to us, because uh, you are not only a researcher, but you are actually working a lot with the luxury industry and also consulting businesses on these questions. Do you have any recommendations to strike the balance between exclusivity and inclusiveness or maybe entering the Asian market or how to straddle the, the balance between different continents. So what did you, what would you recommend out of your work with luxury companies so far? Uh, <laughs> yeah, I, I think, you know, one thing I think I recommend to the company is you, you have to embrace the digitalization world and, and you have to talk to young consumers and understand them. Um, several brands has been very, um, you know, innovative and, and willing to try. And for example, right, we have 
uh, brands that are now using virtual um, celebrities. <laughs> and uh, LV was just the offering the you know the the game characters in the esports um, <laughs> LV outfit, um, and um, so you know these are are all you know how the I guess how the young consumers really you have to think about using these tools and to communicate with the young consumers and they live on internet they live on social media um and if you lose that opportunity you are out of touch with them so i, I definitely think that really understand the young the gen z and their way of communicating and where they communicate where they share information is very very important um mm -hmm. That's one thing, and and be open to that. I guess that's that's my recommendation. And the second thing, um, I think also is to really use, utilize digitalization to actually works for luxurious excellence in service, right? So that's related to how you manage the consumer in the CRM um, and to personalize the, the the experiences. And you know, it's all possible now with the incredible data the company have. It could do very personalized and 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 and, and you know uh, very um, luxurious um, a service for for your very important consumers um, across the world. So um, I think that part um, is 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 managing consumers using the database and and use the technology. Um, and finally, I think um, luxury brands also needs to really think about how their heritage is connected with the current value and the current culture. Um, and to make that connection to to be relevant for the young young consumers lifestyle. Um, because in fact, when we're thinking about competitors, it's probably not just other luxury brand, um, it's actually any other brands or products that people use to explore their lifestyle and uh, to express their taste and identity. Mm -hmm. And the, 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 I think, you know, it used to be that luxury brand is a perfect product for that, right? It says something about status, about prestige, you know, you are special, you have taste, but now there are so many other non-luxury products that also help consumers to achieve these goals. So, Luxury brands really need to step back and think about, you know, I'm not just competing with other expensive handbags. Um, I'm competing with, you know, a handbag that is made of um, made of trash, and uh, but it's very sustainable. It says something about the person's value and all of that. Mm -hmm. So I think that the, the competition is is really about anything that people can use to express who they are. Um, you know, a lot of young consumers nowadays, they, they don't like to buy luxury anymore. They like to use extreme sports or, you know, art to express who they are. Um, so I think that as a big trend is, is, is something that luxury form, traditional luxury form should be watch out. Yeah. Wow. Wow. This is a disruption on the horizon, right? <laughs> Um, I mean, uh, fascinating stuff. Also, the virtual uh, celebrities that you're talking about. That I mean, this is so far from our generation, right? But just have to face it that there's things that we still need to understand, or where we just need to come up to speed, as you're saying. Um, there is one interesting thing, though, where I would like to have your opinion on. When you say 
uh, or when you described what is happening in China, especially around the luxury brands, it sounds very much selling related or sales related. While in Europe, it still sounds like, yeah, we need to nurture the brand, cultivate the brand. So would you agree that somehow the Asian approach is more sales driven than the European approach? I think so. Yeah, I, I actually, I agree with you. Um, I think every brand want to sell, uh, obviously, mm-hmm. um, you, you need to, um, you need, you need the, you need the performance, um, you know, if it's public company, you are responsible for the stakeholders. So obviously, um, you want to earn profits as companies. Mm-hmm. But I think, um, I do think that the sales emphasis, um, what I observe, it is uh, somehow weights more in, in the Asian market. Um, I, I think probably, you know, there, there are a couple of reasons, not just to luxury sector, by the way, it's, it's um, you know, this is an overall general uh, perspective, um, you know, what counts as a successful brand. Um, and there's probably a little bit culture philosophy differences there mm-hmm. um, that, you know, Chinese or Asian culture tend to think if you're big, you know, if you can sell a lot, then you're a good brand. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that is the philosophy, right? That's how people evaluate you. Um, so I think I, I do observe that. Um, but, you know, I think there's also some balances here is that I think that, you know, what I've observing, what the company has is they definitely, even in Europe, in the headquarters, they definitely still really, really rely more and more rely on China market, right? They can mm-hmm. visit. So that obviously part of itself is definitely a big part of it. Um, and it's not just sales, it's also about, I guess, the adaptation and the speed of willing to change. And I think, you know, the, what I've observed here is the, the companies are more willing to change and more innovative. Um, probably because they're younger too, you know, so, mm-hmm. so in a sense that they don't have many, you know, um, long history of, of how to run a successful brand, you know, you know, being, 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 being on their back. So they're, they're more willing to try a lot of new things, innovative things. And that part also contributes to the idea of, it looks like it's a sales driven, but um, I, I must say, even in terms of communications and all of that, um, I think, it's also here just happens really fast. Mm-hmm. Um, they, they, you know, they're reacting in a much faster way um, than what I've seen, you know, in, in, in Europe and in the US. Oh yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, I mean, we have been talking a lot now um, about the old traditional European brands, uh, Louis Vuitton, Chanel, Dior, Dolce Gabbana, Rolex, who all made their way to China and, uh, who are now on the Olymp, in the Olymp of sales. But if I turn this question around, is there any Chinese luxury brand that Western consumers will have on their radar soon? (laughs) Um, I I think, you know, if we expand the category, um, I mean, first of all, there are some of the, you know, European luxury brands are already um, owned by Chinese companies through acquisition. (laughs) So... Um, you know, like Fossing Fashion Group is, is a local Shanghai-based company. The company now long Laven, no Shenzhen, um, you know, so it's expanding. So that part is, it's not Chinese brand, but 
you know, they are operated and owned by Chinese company now. So that's one part. Second um, rising I've seen is actually a new category. I would call it tech locks. And that is technology product, but a very expensive, it's almost a luxury good. So it's not about heritage, but, you know, they're almost in a new category. Um, so Dyson, you know, hair dryer, for example, is, is sort of in mm -hmm. that category. So I've seen many Chinese companies that are enter into that category that are quite successful, you know, like um, the companies who does robot to clean the floor, they're very high-end, you know, very expensive, or kitchenware, so the, in the technology sector. Um, there are also some Chinese brands that are in the jewelry, um, jewelry segments, like Chota Folk um, is a Hong Kong-based company and has been very successful. Um, and actually, um, a lot of e-commerce and very successful brand. Um, in terms of this really hardcore luxury, you know, like leather goods and, you know, timepieces, I haven't seen. But like I said, I think some of things that need to be watched out is, is also this lifestyle that, that it's not just about hardcore luxury. So let me give you an example. I think there are many new Chinese cosmetics brand, perfumes, homewares, candles, mm -hmm. um, like, you know, there are Little Beast, there, there are other brands that are, they're, they're very expensive, and, uh, but they are not, you know, like a, a Rolex watch, um, but, you know, they cost, you know, several hundred dollars, uh, very pricey, high-end brand image, and Chinese consumers, especially the young ones, are very open-minded to try these Chinese brands. And I do think that is some of the traditional luxury brands should mm -hmm. watch out because we know that cosmetics and perfumes are the cash cow for the brands. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so, you, you know, if consumers nowadays don't think they really need a Chanel lipsticks, but they are willing to buy a, equally expensive lipsticks from a Chinese company, um, you know, they are losing that market. And also to, you know, many, many brands using this lifestyle cosmetics as an intro product, right? To covet mm -hmm. um, to culture their consumers, and um, I do think that part of the Chinese brands actually is on rising for that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Wow, that's uh, very interesting, and this is so unique insight that you're giving to us. And I think the beauty of it lies in buying a little bit of the culture that is behind. I think it it would make very much sense if the original Chinese luxury brands would infuse us here in the West a little bit with their culture because we can we can learn so much from each other. And I think luxury brands are still carriers of culture. Yeah. And um, yeah, I'm, I'm really looking forward to see what's coming on the, on the market. So Yajin, we're coming slowly to an end of our podcast um and uh, yeah i can only thank you for these unique insights from your multicultural perspective i, I really admire your hybrid capacities of yeah bridging two cultures east west the us uh, china um that is uh, that is just amazing and i'm really excited to see how these two luxury cultures actually will inspire each other in the future and yeah. on a personal note I really hope to visit you soon in Shanghai oh to get a live God, perspective. <laughs> yes, yes, you have to felicitous. It's it's uh, it's incredible. <laughs> Thank you so much for coming and sharing your your 
incredible insights. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you for inviting me. Thank you. And our listeners will find more information around you, Yajin, and your research in our show notes of this podcast episode. All the best. Thank you, Felicitas. Thank you for listening to Luxury On Air with Karine Segeti and Felicitas Morhart. This podcast is provided to you by Deloitte Switzerland and the Swiss Center for Luxury Research. If you've enjoyed this episode, you can leave us a five-star review. If you're keen to stay up to date on what's trending in the luxury industry, don't forget to subscribe. As always, you can find more information about the current episode in the show notes. We wish you all the best. Until next time.